What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast. This is presented by Public.com and OutSystems. It's episode number nine of season three, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. At some point, hopefully in 2021, the PLL champs will be on Paul Levesque's list of champions to send a custom WWE title to. He does it for all the major leagues. Paul, if you're listening, it's been a bucket list wish for pro lacrosse that I've had on the low key for years. So much that when I won a title in MLL with New York, a buddy of mine who works in production at the WWE knew that and brought one to the game in case we won. Then post game on CBS Sports, I had it strapped over my shoulder. But this isn't about me. Today's show features, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time, Triple H. For those that have watched the WWE during the Attitude Era, there were so many storylines unveiling, both at a macro level professionally, where Vince, Triple H, Rock, Stone Cold were in head-to-head competition with Ted Turner in the WCW, but they were also pushing the limits of live sports, coining the phrase that we all use now, sports entertainment. And by the way, they won that battle against the WCW. Today, Hunter still gets in the ring, usually during WrestleMania, one of the biggest outdoor sporting events of the calendar year, agnostic of the sport. But his day-to-day job is executive vice president of global talent, strategy, and development for the WWE. Truth be told, I've looked up to people like Paul Levesque and Dwayne Johnson since I was young. They were rivals in the ring, and both have transitioned their careers beyond sport. You probably see me talking about them on social media quite often. And in fact, when we were first building the PLL, I would reference the WWE as a business case study next to the UFC, MLS, and NBA. Here's what we cover on the show. Paul's unique path to becoming a pro wrestler. He had a ton of work ethic, but no access, so he began to bodybuild. We talk about developing talent and how Paul's led a developmental program called NXT that's made pro wrestling a career choice for young athletes. Again, akin to what we're trying to do professionally for lacrosse. We talk about his evolving training regimen. He's 51 years old and a beast. No longer trains as a bodybuilder, but for function and mobility, Look out for a gross and somehow comedic story about Paul tearing his bicep for relief in his shoulder. Anyway, lastly, the media rights deal for the WWE. It's grown over the last decade, a lot. Paul's been on the front line of those business mechanics. And note, we recorded this pod before the WWE announced that they were taking the WWE Network to Peacock for a reported $205 million. That takes their total media rights package through the entirety of the term. That includes Raw, SmackDown, and the WWE Network to over $700 million. That's a real business. Let's get into it. Here is Triple H. Today's show is made possible by our friends at public.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social too, so you can follow other investors like yours truly, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money, democratizing trading, and giving us space to talk about it. Visit public.com forward slash suiting up and out systems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to solve for your business needs. The PLL used OutSystem to help us design our COVID app for the championship series. We continue to work with them today. They ensure the health and safety of all of our players, staff, and coaches. All right, Paul. Good to see you, man. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. I, I didn't tell you this when we first met. Four or five years ago now when I was still playing in MLO, which is the previous league, and that's when we had first met, talking about the launch of, of our league, the Premier Lacrosse League. 
I convinced our team owners then at the time to cue player music after player goals. I did that personally, but I also studied the WWE my entire life, and especially my first 10 years as a professional in the sports business industry. But you know what track that I queued up, and it was the season where I scored the most goals, was the game. (laughs) (laughs) I had your music hit, your theme music, for those that that don't watch, evolved over time. We'll talk a little bit about, a lot about branding and how that's scoped. But beyond that, because your career is so dynamic, we'll we'll start with just uh, something that I battle with from time to time, and it's people asking you what you do. How do you describe yourself? You know, you're over 50, but you're still in the ring. Yeah, uh, not as much, thank God. As I was, <laughs> Although I, uh, this past Monday, I had to get in there with Randy Orton on it. I had, ironically had just done a, an interview where I said, uh, in some ways now my career is I'm in case of emergency break glass for WWE, like if something goes wrong. And uh, ironically, that week, uh, Drew McIntyre, who's WWE champion, gets uh, COVID, asymptomatic, but can't be at the show, can't perform, had a big match that week with Randy Orton on TV, and I get the call Sunday night for the Monday TV of like, hey, we're going to need you to be in the ring tomorrow, and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> the I hadn't wrestled a match since 2019, June of 2019, and you know, you just got to go out there and, and you do what you do, And but I joked that uh, Shawn Michaels... At the end of the show, I sort of disappear. There's like a hocus pocus thing with one of our characters, The Fiend. And uh, she said, man, you disappeared. I was worried about you. I didn't know where you went. I said, I was under the ring looking for my lung. <laughs> it had gone under the ring somewhere because it certainly wasn't in my chest anymore. It's hard to do when you don't do it very often, you know? Yeah. I was listening to you talk about yourself. And this is, you know, you know our businesses are different. Team sports, sports entertainment. Uh, but to a degree, lacrosse, given that it's its niche kind of market position and uh, it's still relatively new at the professional ranks. When people ask me what I do, I, you know, professional lacrosse player, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, which one lands better? And there's there's ego in it and such. I've heard you talk about in, early on in your career because of the stigmas sometimes tied to professional wrestling that you would call yourself an entertainer and that would land you know, now, you know, millions of followers, how do you kind of view yourself and, and kind of the business of wrestling to those that aren't the core fans as an ambassador to the sport? So it's, it's a funny thing in that if you go back to the beginning of my career, my uh, generation, if you said pro wrestler, there was still a lot of stigma to wrestling. Yeah. Just a bunch of uh, back bars and not really respected and everything else even though you know you look at the 80s and you say like hogan and savage and flair and those guys were household names um there still was just this weird stigma to what we did um as you move forward so even as things were progressing into the attitude era with wwe into the 90s and into the early 2000s Sometimes, depending on who you met with, if you said, and and this is an interesting thing, you'll talk about branding here, but this is an interesting thing that Vince did that I think a lot of people misinterpret, but the whole sports entertainment thing was one, to avoid regulation of sport that didn't really apply to us. We're like theater, but we were being regulated like we were a sport, you know, with oversight and everything that didn't make any sense Hmm. and paying through the nose for taxes that didn't apply to us. But also just the to lose the stigma of pro wrestling. It's why he wouldn't refer to wrestlers, other wrestlers working for WWE as 
they're pro wrestlers, they're WWE superstars. So like if, if I was to get on a plane now, sit next to somebody that I didn't know and they asked what I did, if I, I said WWE, you know, I work for WWE, it's, it's a game changer. I think the brand has evolved to such a state now that people respect it on, on a different level. I think no different than if you said to somebody in the late 70s, early 80s, and you said, what do they do? And they said, I write comic books. You would have been like, oh, my God, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and then, but if you said, I work for Marvel now, it's a different thing. And um, so he, he really rebranded that out as WWE meant something more. A lot of people play football. And I used to use this analogy a lot with talent because they would say, well, why can't we? I'm proud to be a wrestler. Why can't I say I'm a wrestler? It's not that you're not a wrestler. It's your WWE superstar. Anybody can wrestle. Yep. You can wrestle in your backyard and say I'm a professional wrestler. But to be a WWE superstar is something different. It's like saying I played football. I was in the NFL. It's two different things. Yeah. And I think that branding is important. So, you know, there, there is that weird stigma to it sometimes. And, and you'll hear me quote Vince a lot, but it's part of one of the things he taught me. It's also the art of communication, right? It's not what you say to people. It's what they take in from what you say. So you got to know the audience you're dealing with. If, if you're dealing with somebody that's going to see you, you particularly as if you say, well, I'm a professional lacrosse player and they go, okay, jock, can't right. do much else yeah. or whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Spent his life in a gym, just not probably not that educated, maybe or something, whatever. And you say executive, it's perceived differently depending on who they are. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I I thought about that a lot too, and where we are in our stage. And I want to go back to to Vince because you were you were wrestling during that era of the switch to to sports and entertainment, the Attitude Era, but. I, I start where we are as the PLL and trying to be practical with our athletes because they get asked and we don't have cities tied to our to our lacrosse clubs and it's more complicated than how to the next stage of what you're saying is how they how the fan hears it how they process it they're used to for a century processing team sports based on the city you play in yeah it's moving away from that for our for our belief and reasons that's data based and social media and just millennial Gen Z, Gen Alpha based. But I think about the PLL, how athletes used to say they play in the NFL. The NFL is so perennial now that if you ask a football player who, who plays in New York, he's like, I play for the Jets. He doesn't even have to say the NFL. Yes. And people know because it's how big that is. Depending on the team. Depending on the team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair. If you played for like one of the lesser teams, you might have played the NFL. <laughs> so that time, you know, and, and maybe we'll jump in to your career of when kind of Vince shifted to sports entertainment, but how he's kind of grappled and embraced the modern era of media. And and I remember being an early WWE Network subscriber where it was first opened up, it was a six month minimum. And I subscribed and paid and long time subscriber because I, I loved the, the content, but I loved studying what you guys were doing, which were early into now what everyone's calling the streaming wars. I mean, over, over half a decade ago, you guys were in and now have over 2 million subs. But to your career growing up in the, in the independent world, then getting picked up by WCW, moving over to WWF, now WWE, your career and what all of your uh, colleagues would say was off to one of the hottest starts. And, and they were like, you know, this guy uh, has got it. And then you participated at MSG in what was something called 
kayfabe, which uh, really has to do with at its core selling the finish in the business. And what happened was your group of best friends, your mentors at the time, finished a match, and Kevin Nash was leaving the WWF to the WCW. Shawn Michaels in the ring. You guys embraced at MSG, and that was considered, uh, you know, the worst thing you could do in the business at the time. And I bring that up because where the business has evolved in sports entertainment for your call on the WWE network is you bring people behind the gorilla. Now you talk about the entertainment. So it's much different. Your, uh, your penalty, you know, decades ago for participating in MSG wouldn't probably have been the case now. Yeah. The, the business was changing. It's a funny thing that like, uh, wrestling was like, you're, you're talking about like the eighties into the nineties, uh, late nineties is when that, um, like 95, 96 is when that takes place. Like everybody knew what professional wrestling was. It wasn't like this business where you were fooling people and yeah, it's like magic, right? Like you, uh, you enjoy magic. You don't know, like, the, like Chris Angel's not a sorcerer. He's an illusions, right? He's an illusionist and he creates illusions. You know what it is. Doesn't mean you don't enjoy it, but there was like this unwritten law still that you had to outside of the shows, like talent, you know, if you were fighting a guy in the ring, you weren't allowed to ride together. And, you know, just, just these different things that were silly. Fans knew. Fans knew we're all showing up to the same places. We, you know, we go to Europe together. We all get off the same buses. Yeah. They put the bad guys on one bus. They put the good guys in another bus. We all arrive at the same time. We all get off the buses and go in the same door. Yeah. But it was these silly things. And, um, you know, when the curtain call happened, which is what that was is referred to as, we, those guys, a couple of our guys, Scott Hall and, and uh, Kevin Nash were leaving to go to WCW, which we were at war with. Um, Sean and I were staying, but it was the last night at Madison Square Garden, which was like the Mecca. And we embraced in the ring and the purists of our business, it destroyed them. And Vince felt like a need to maintain order. He had to punish somebody. Kevin and Scott were leaving. Sean was world champion. So I took the brunt of it, which was fine. I, you know, and I'm, Big boy, I did the crime. I knew what I was doing, right? And and but even when I was having the meeting with Vince and we were, I was uh, accepting my punishment and having the conversation about it. At the end of it, I said to him, "There's something going on here to where you have to ask yourself if it was so wrong. Then why was the loudest thing of the night what we did at the end of the show? Eighteen thousand people were standing up, going crazy. Damn, if yeah. that was the most exciting thing we did all night and the thing that people remember most, why is that so wrong?" Yeah, the business was starting to change. People understand what we do. They understand, especially now with the internet, there, there's a duality to what we do. There's the show, and then there's the behind the scenes of the show. People are are just as fascinated with both. Yeah, um, and you have to give them some of the both. Now we do retirement stories, and guys retire on air, and people that they've been fighting with their entire careers come out and embrace them, and. You know, you see moments backstage. You can go on the network and watch it 24-7 on a talent where you see everything behind the scenes with the exception of the wires and how the trick is done in the magic reference, right? You don't, we just don't show them exactly how those, the magic comes to be, but we show them everything else at the right times. You don't want to lose perspective of it in the moment. Chris doesn't refer to himself. Chris Angel doesn't refer to himself as an illusionist, illusionist in the, show you know he doesn't levitate and then go i didn't actually do that like right. how i did that with the machine back then but like it's all cool right you know and so yeah. it's, it's a tricky process with our business but it definitely was changing there definitely was a shifting happening 
the, the, the internet in some ways is an amazing thing for our business. And then also, I think one of the worst things in the world, because you can pick and choose the opinions that you read yep. and justify any position you want. You know, in our, in our business, you can filter out the people that say you're not very good and you can just listen to the ones that tell you the greatest thing in the world. So pretty soon you start to believe everything you read, that you are the greatest. Yeah. And it might not necessarily be true. To some people, it's true. To others, it's not. You know, and so it's on one hand very good, but on the other hand, it isolates you to people, only people that have the same opinion as you. Yeah, I'll, I'll paraphrase this, but I, I believe Henry Ford said if, if we listened to our audience as emphatically as uh, most people do, we'd still be riding horses. Right. I, th I think that that's, it's especially interesting to your business, though, because when I was growing up watching what the WWE did differently than any other major sport is they would always say, you know, they listen to the fans and the fans dictate the storylines to a degree. Now with the Internet, it's just louder and louder and louder. So you do have to have filters. You talked about your creative input in that match or coming out of that match and talking to Vince backstage. And you had always expressed, even in your first call with Vince, your work ethic and you wanted to be the greatest. But even back to when you first fell in love with wrestling and getting your first uh, gig, you had printed out your own 8x10s, your own business cards. You had this level of uh, cerebralness that JR then you know, termed you uh, the cerebral assassin. But uh, where did where did you think that came from? Was that innate for you? Was that given to you by your your mom and dad, or was that just some type of intellectual horsepower that you continue to groom today? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it's intellectual horsepower or it's your EQ. Some people have, some people don't. I think uh, are you in tune with other people? I don't know. I've just always been a linear thinker in that. Like, if you want to accomplish something, okay, so how do I get there? And what are the steps I need to go do to get there? And I'll tell you, this will sound cliche, but one of the things that I really, um, it really resonates in my life is I started training at the gym when I was 14. So I, was, I became obsessed with it. So there were two things that were sort of obsessive in my life at that time. I, I shouldn't say obsessive, but like that I was really into. One was wrestling and the other was bodybuilding. And not bodybuilding because I thought, oh, I'm going to be a professional bodybuilder. Sometimes I see that now when people write about me. Oh, he was a bodybuilder. I wasn't a bodybuilder. I wasn't into it. I was into wrestling. I saw these big guys' power, all this stuff. It impressed me. I went to the gym one summer with a friend of mine. And this new gym opened up. We went there. I saw all these big, powerful guys. I was like, man, that's impressive to me. It's, I want to emulate that, right, in some manner. I started training. But then I fell in love with the the discipline of it. I guess no bullshit to it in that if you worked harder, you got more. Hmm. If if you went to the gym and you trained hard and you focused on your diet and you ate right, you improved. It all came down to how hard you were willing to work. And to me, there were processes in place. So if you want, you know, if you're training and everything's going good, but then you look at it and you go like, I want my biceps go. You have to figure that out. You have to go and figure out what you're doing that's not working and then go through the steps to get there. So it's like this linear process, but the more that you work at it and the harder you you attack it, the more you get out of it. I'm a big believer. I used to read a lot of stuff from Arnold when he was first coming up, and I'm a big believer. And he and I have talked about this a lot. I still believe it to this day. The gym teaches you everything you need to know about life, hmm. right? F figure it out. Make a plan. 
then go attack that plan. Do everything that's in that plan. And if you don't get where you want to go, you screwed up somewhere in the planning. Go back, figure that plan out again, and then go attack it again. The harder you work, the more you're willing to dedicate yourself to it, the more you're willing to put the effort in, you're going to get those results. And the and the weights don't lie. You can lie to yourself, you can cheat, you can do all the other stuff, but they, they don't lie to you. They don't tell you what you want to hear. You just got to go do it. And I think that that instilled a lot in me. So when I started, now when wrestling became a reality, it was I attacked it the same way. Okay, so what do I got to do? All right, I got to go train. Then once I start to get good enough, I got to start to work shows. When I feel like I'm good enough there, I got to figure out where do I go next to continue that growth? And then how do I get there? Well, I've got to tell people who I am. I've got to show them who I am. I've got just like a job. So I'm going to create those things just like a job. The guys I was around, none of them were doing that. They were just, you know, I, I would, there was a friend of mine that was wrestling too. I became friends with him because he was in the same school as me. And I would say to him all the time, like, dude, what are you, what are you doing to get to the next level? You know, and I'm, man, I'm working all these shows. I'm like, are you just counting on them to show up one day and go like, we have to have you? Like, that isn't how it works. No yeah. one, like, that's just a crapshoot. That's like hoping I win, you know, somebody comes over to my house tomorrow and gives me a million dollars. This is not going to happen. Yeah. You got to go after it. Yeah. They couldn't get that part of it. And I wasn't willing to not go after it. If I failed, it was because, it wasn't because I didn't try everything it was because it just wasn't for me yeah there are two things that jump out to me on that the first is that the translatable skill for athletes especially professional athletes in whatever discipline you're in if you can take those skills to how you got there and apply them to your next career because pro sports are ageist that's the part that really fucking sucks about yeah. it and it's terrible yeah. if you've reached the peak in whatever discipline you have and it will bell curve at some point and that's not the case in any other industry if you're the top media executive as long as you keep applying yourself you're going to reap the benefits of continuing to lead and in sports you know there you you reach a peak and you begin to dip so take those same skills into business and, and it will work and that's and that's what you've done the other part though that's interesting is different than my business and your business and i think about it even with like Hollywood entertainment and acting is in sports. The path is, is right in front of us because of the school system. Like I fell in love with lacrosse yeah. and I knew I needed to make my high school team be the best on that team, be the best in the state, get recruited. And the path then was the same in college and professionally and internationally. But in professional wrestling, you know, you, you would watch it on the couch with your dad, but you didn't know how to get there. So from what I'm hearing is, all right, I got to look apart, so I'm going to get into bodybuilding and try to look the part. And then you use that linear curiosity to say, all right, I'm going to get into my first gym with Kowalski. I'm going to then make my own cards. I'm going to go to a fucking conference and pass out a business card and figure out how to get to the next stage. And, and that, to me, is, is amazing and very rare uh, because we're largely dependent on either our parents or a friend group, and it's why a lot of actors grew up in Hollywood. It's a lot of professional athletes had a professional athlete in their family lineage is like, there's the belief that like, Oh, I can do that. Yeah. And, and I think what you said is exactly right. Not having the path, right. Most guys that in the generation, my generation or the generation before us stumbled into the business. Mm. 
They were, you know, you hear stories all the time. The Road Warriors were bouncers at a club. The wrestlers used to all go in there after the shows. They saw these two big guys that they had become friends with and were like, why don't you get in the business? They went, okay. Yeah. Right? One big power through one big bodybuilder. And they're like, okay. And they, they tried it. And then, you know, there they go. And you see that a lot. Like guys that stumbled into it. Yep. It's why in in the 80s, so many guys came out of West Texas State University because there was just a connection there to the wrestling business. So there was like, well, this guy came out of here. He's local. I'm going to go talk to him and get there. There was no path to get there. It's one of the things that in my role now as an executive and when I first came in to start to work inside the company that I felt like really needed to change in order to ensure the future of the business because there used to be a million places to go wrestle these territory systems where yeah. you know back in the 80s the 70s i came in at the tail end of it you know there would be a little territory in memphis a little territory every all over texas little territories in in, in all these different regions and states and cities and then there were bigger territories wwf nwa down in in the mid-atlantic and you know just minneapolis had the awa as those went away, because Vince saw cable television coming, he, he wanted one global brand, and he was very successful at it. And that's what people wanted, too. But it turned it, it turned away and shut down all these other little places to go learn how to do this. Yeah. And for for people to grow, it, it, it ostensibly let the force grow in, and all the paths that were there to get in the wrestling business just went away. So how do you recreate those? There is no – it's not like there's a – pro wrestling in colleges where you just like get good at wrestling in high school and then you'll get to college and then you'll get picked up by WWE. So you had to create this sort of system where you go and recruit athletes. And, you know, like look, my, my long-term goal is to have a system in place where if you're a, an athlete coming up, even if you're in high school, you might be thinking, maybe I, I play in college. Hopefully I get a scholarship. Maybe I go to college. I play ball a little bit in college or, I do whatever, but then, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to make it in the NFL. That's a, a shot in the dark, but certainly if I don't, man, I've been watching WWE my whole life. I love it. I already know how to get there. I got a card. I got the guy. I got the, the system. I know what it's like. I know what you've got to go through. Can you make it at that? Still, It's still a long shot, but like, you know, the path is there. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of athletes, what, what I've found over the last eight years is if you, it's not about the money. It was like for me, it wasn't about the money. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess for you at first, it wasn't necessarily about the money. It was the love of playing and doing what you're doing and the life that comes with that, being an athlete. Like that's a lot of what you fall in love with is the discipline and the camaraderie and the gym and the environment and, and that linear growth pattern. Yep. So, you know, when, when to me, when we bring athletes to our performance center, that's where if you played D1 college ball or something like that, or you were high level, you had all this stuff around you. You're okay getting no money to go try to do this uh, and little money to try to learn how to do this as long as you have that same environment. Man, I look, this, this place is magical. I get to be a pro athlete still. I have coaches and everything I had, it's all there. And I get to be an athlete for a couple more years while trying to fulfill this dream. If you can make that path, and it's clear to people, then you can recreate everything else. We're going to take a break in the action to talk about one of our presenting partners. This is public.com. 
They're an investing social network. It's a free app where you can own the companies you believe in and share ideas in a community of investors. Here's the benefit of having that community of investors. You and I can learn from each other. We talk about companies, market trends, and we learn from movement that the stock does on a day-to-day. Hopefully, get in the right places for our long-term wealth. And you can follow me there. I'm at Paul Rabel, as well as some other people you might know who have been on the podcast like Tony Hawk. There are those like The Breakfast Club's Angela Yee and an old-time, two-time podcast guest, Scott Galloway. This week, for instance, I talked about all the movement in the podcast industry. Now over a billion dollars in annual advertising that gets sunk into these shows. And there's been a ton of M&A over the last year by publicly traded companies like Spotify, SiriusXM, Apple. Anyway, public.com has no commission fees on standard trades. There are no account minimums to get started. You can invest in literally thousands of publicly traded companies for as little as $1. So sign up at public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up, and you'll get $10 in free stock so you can try it for yourself. Here's the fine print. Valid for U.S. residents 18 and older and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures. I'm getting good at that. I mean, among a number of things that you do on the creative, on the production, on the on the business side of the WWE, leading the effort for NXT, which, you know, from the outside looking in, it's like, okay, this is the feeder system to the WWE. But on the inside looking out, there's a lot of fans that believe, you know, the matches in NXT are, are better than the WWE. So you've created this juggernaut. But I think even inside of that, you know, adding a lot of fuel to the performance center down in Orlando, Florida, and what you're talking about, and I'll use you and Rock as two examples, even tying to the previous conversation we were just having, is that you're increasing the talent pool for the WWE by providing Performance Center, taking NXT Global. But the difference between you and Rock in, in many cases is you know, you would have flourished in the Performance Center system, you would have flourished in NXT. You didn't have that and you figured it out on your own, but you were always committed to becoming a professional wrestler. You could have played in the NFL, uh, but you spent your time in early days developing the skills. Rock had lineage. His father wrestled, so he, he grew up in the, in the business, so he, he had that innate and kind of the learned ability, but he wanted to be in the NFL, couldn't make it, probably could have if he committed to it because of his relationship with his father and the business flipped over and became a WWE superstar like yourself. And so what I hear is like, man, if your vision is is brought to life long term, you're developing not just increasing the talent pool, but you're getting premier athletes across the world that are developing skill at an early age because they want to wrestle in the WWE for a profession and not go to the WWE after a, a stint in the NFL or the NBA? Yeah, to me, the the ideal state is, and there's some high-level, Olympic-level and college-level guys that absolutely, sh- like if you said he's going to get signed in the NFL, I would go absolutely. Nothing is certain in the NFL, obviously. But yeah, And, and another guy that is Olympic, like he will absolutely go to the Olympics if he decides to do it in college right now both of them have said like, yeah, look, I, I want to do that. But my entire life, I I just want to be a WWE superstar. So like they're in college, they're 
trying to figure out right now, like, okay, I got it. I think one has a year left, one has a year and a, uh, maybe two left. But either way, both of them are like, I'm, I'm, they've been to the PC. They're like, I'm all in the, the NFL guys. Like I'm, you know, I'm getting all these offers and stuff. I don't want to go do that. I want to, I want to come here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to finish out my college. He's like, I'll sign whatever you want me to right now. Like, let's go. The, the, the other kid is just like, I just want to, I'm not sure yet if I want to take a shot at the Olympics or if I want to just come do this. And he said, the reason I think I want to go to the Olympics is just because I think it makes me bigger in mm. WWE, you know, and he's like, like the so, Kurt Angle style. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of that, that because he's, he's a you know wrestler. And so he's, I think, trying to figure that out. Those are the coolest things to me because I see that what the vision was is slowly beginning to take place. They're the first people on the, on the tip of that, but they're the people that are going like, and I always wanted to do this. Yeah. I football paid for college or, you know, wrestling paid for college. But while I was doing that, I just came to you guys because the path was there. And now here I go. And it's not as it's not the the next choice when the first choice doesn't work out. It's the first choice. You just had to take your path to get there, you know, yeah. and, and that's the thing. And I and I love the I love the aspect of guys, you know, or girls, especially going through college and finishing college and all that, because I think it's so helpful and also the maturity of what you get during that time frame in your life it changes you and allows you to think of life differently than if we were bringing in guys at 18 coming out of high school and stuff like that it, i think it would take them twice as long to develop they're just not mature enough yet to handle the system you know yeah yeah you, you, you got to make some dumb decisions and do some things early in your life to get to where you're comfortable and it's different for everybody but i think that's important it's the eq development phase too part of it that you, that you had mentioned. And I think a lot of EQ has to do with uh, failure and, and growing and learning from failure and, and then picking up wider understanding of, of how people feel. A big piece of EQ is empathy. But staying on, staying on this, and, and when you look at talent, part of what you're uh, known for in your business and developing talent, we talked about, and, and let's call it different than team sports, which is just a lot more linear. In your business, you have the talent in ring that has to lead. It's one of the things that I remember talking with a Facebook executive 10 years ago when I, when pro lacrosse had no linear exposure, most people, even lacrosse fans didn't know there was professional lacrosse and I was getting pretty good at social. And he still reminded me, Hey man, in the end, you still have to be the best player in the world. Like people sniff that shit out if you're not, and you're just a good promoter on social. So talent in ring one, Look is a part of your business, your gimmick, your ability to cut a promo. What are what aspects are innate? Things that I didn't mention. How do you work to develop? What are some of the best ways to develop some of that charisma? I, I think that charisma, in a lot of ways, is a is a you have it or you don't. Yeah. You know, there, there's, so if if you were to say to me, what are the things that we look for in our system in athletes? So whereas, and and I don't necessarily, I don't know enough. I'm like not a big football fan let's just say but like where you know that you go through the combine and it's numbers and stats which i feel like are mostly people trying to justify why they're saying pick that guy because if he fails look the numbers were there it wasn't me saying he was good and yeah i was wrong right and yeah. so the numbers don't lie but like in if if you were to ask me what we look for most i would say charisma is king i'm looking for heart from somebody i'll take somebody that's a little less talented that wants it more so than I will the talented guy that has all the tools and just, it's always come easy to him. Hmm. 
because I feel like they most times won't, when it gets difficult, they'll quit. But charisma is king. And the second thing I'm looking for is the emergent leader. Our, our business is not a team sport, but it is in a manner of, I cannot wrestle myself. I have to wrestle the guy across the ring from me. I don't have to get along with them. We don't have to be best friends, but we have to work like a team. It's the only way it works. That teamwork works all the way down to there's a fine line between safety of what we do and crippling somebody with what we do. Yeah, I have to trust them with my body. They have to trust me with theirs. And our, our timing with each other is essential. So it is a team. And the team has to all work. If you say this is the guy as the representative of the brand, this is the guy or the girl and everybody else is going to be in the roles around that, that might shift at some point and everybody's going to want that role. But when they're, that person's in that role, you have to support them. It's a team. Yeah, You work together like a team to make the best product, first match to last match, all those things. The leaders are important. So it's funny, in our, in our tryout process, we usually have multiple days. First day we kill them. You're looking for heart. You're looking for who has charisma, like who, who's just got it in the room, who's going to work their ass off. Who has all that stuff? Second day, we bring them back. We and they're thinking like, oh, I can't go through this again if they do that level of stuff with us. We start killing them again. When they start to doubt, now we start to look for a few different things. Who still has some charisma left, and who's shutting down? And and it was phony. It was they learned how to have some charisma and be big and and and. But who is the emergent leader? When somebody starts to fail and they start to question, can I keep going? And the person next to them drop. Do they pick that person up and go, come on, dude, we can do this. Let's go and, and keep going. Or do they push that person down and go like, oh, I, can, I can do this. And he can't. And like, forget him. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to win. I'm going to succeed and move forward. Right. That's not a leaders bring people with them. Wow. And, and we look for those qualities and those skills and who shuts down people talk about when, when you, you know, when, when you reach that failure point or that, that it exposes all the, the realities of who you are. And so in those moments of doubt, failure, exhaustion, all those things, we see who they really are. And that's what you really want. You want it to be difficult and see who emerges from that as the person that will pick everybody up, make everybody great around them. Yeah, That's really the two biggest things we look for. It's dynamic. It, it, it makes me think of your road, uh, which was largely driven intrinsically by the motivation to get to where you wanted to get to. And then when you made it into the WWE, switched over from the WCW, you still feel alone, like I'm sure a, a lot of wrestlers do. And uh, hopping in a rental car, at, at, you know, getting ready to, to go to the next match, Kevin Nash, legend in the business, rolls his window down and tells you to hop in. I assume that's that, that emergent leadership type. And what I think about is there's the innate emergent leader and then there's the luck of the draw that both of us have had in, in moments where we've been grabbed on by a mentor yeah. that, have, that have helped us through and have taught us ropes. And I think about that a lot. And I wonder if, if youth, you know, how you manage mentorship and if it is manufactured from time, like, hey, someone's got to take care of this person. I know Sean gives you calls from time to time because your schedule's packed to the brim every day. And we need people to help us. It's definitely that. And, and some of that can be managed. Some people you have to give permission to be a leader to, right? They're waiting for you to tell them. Other people, it just they just do it. You yeah. know, they just kind of pick it up. They pick the other people up around them. They talk to them. Kevin Nash didn't have to roll his window down and go, dude, come with us. And, and you know, he saw, he saw somebody that was really hungry. 
kid that was really hungry and wanted to work hard. And we talked a few times and I think he realized like, man, he's just like us. He just loves the business and just wants to do this and doesn't care about what anybody thinks about it. So come on. I don't know that the other guys in the car might not have, they probably wouldn't have done that. Like, I don't know that that in that moment in time, that would have been Shawn Michaels mindset. If somebody said to Shawn, Hey, you mind helping this kid out and giving him some advice? He'd been like, okay. You know, but he, it wouldn't have been his thought to do it. It's just different, right? Different times, different mindsets. So some people, it, being that locker room leader or being a talent in as a role model, it just comes to others. I find guys that are in the right mind frame, and I have this conversation a lot at, at, with the talent at RPC. I, I see people that are in the right mind frame and that are kind of doing little things here and there that make them look, you know, that, okay, he's got some leadership qualities and, he wants to help. He just doesn't know if it's his place yet. Yeah. And I, will, I will go to them and challenge them to be something more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking for somebody that can be more than just a, another performer. Yeah. Looking at somebody that can run a locker room and when there's problems, stand up to those problems, solve those problems that can help everybody through their problems. If a performer is struggling, can go to them and go, Hey, what's going on with you, man? What's happening? I notice this and, and be there for people. And, you know, mo- nine times out of 10, I find that when you, think I can do that? Like you trust me? And I, well, man, I, I'm honored that you would think that. Cool. And then they do it. You know, it's, it's not like the whole room has to look at everybody and go like, can you be the leader, please? Right. And tell us what to do. But, but most people want that. I used to equate it all the time to like, if, if you're on a plane and the plane starts to have really bad turbulence, you look to whoever the leader is, the single leader that you feel is the, the guiding, whether you could acknowledge that or not, you look to see if they're panicking. If they're not panicking, you go like, I guess we're all right. If yeah. they're panicking, you go like, oh, shit, we're all going to die. Yeah, it's incredible, too, that when you make it to the top, like the, the highest echelon in, in your business, the WWE, and you have everyone in the locker room at some point has been a leader to to have what it takes there, and then you still have someone in that packed locker room of all-star talent that becomes the leader of those leaders. And that is, uh, that's, that's something you can't manufacture, put your finger on. And there's probably a lot of that emergent leader identification and, and then the charisma piece. Yeah. For you, charisma, when you were first working with Kowalski, he he gave you a name, Terra Rising, and you, you, yeah. you wanted to split it up to, to Terra Rising. Uh, so you you like, damn, you've got this legend that's not giving you a choice and you humbly accept, but you also add your twist to it. You know, you're with Ric Flair. He, he tells you, he, you know, he wants this like kind of, French aristocrat personality. So in the WCW, you turn to Jean-Paul Levesque, and then you kind of maintain that presence in the WWE a year later, Hunter Hearst Hemsley, Triple H, the game, Cerebral Assassin. So like that is important. And we were going to, we said we were going to talk about branding, but is it then up to the athlete to bring that to life? Yeah. Look, there is never a perfect scenario. You're never going to just get everything where you go, oh my God, that's the perfect name. That's the perfect music. That's the perfect scenario. Yeah. Like this is all perfect. Lucky me, right? Like yeah. that is how it works. Nine times out of 10, looking at it now from the other side, there's creative in a show. A show is written. Nine times out of 10, the talent take it, make it better. They make it theirs. Nine times out of 10, they complain about that creative before they get it. Like you give it to them and they're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this. It's stupid. Then, then they start thinking about it and like, well, I could do this, make it, you know, I, that would make it better. And then, like next thing you know, it's awesome. Yeah. 
I, I think that in sports is never great scenarios. It's just the scenario that's in front of you and you have to figure out how to make it awesome. Right. You have to figure out how to take that and make it into something phenomenal. You mentioned when I was in WCW and I'll never forget Rick coming to me and like they call me in for these interviews. First time I'm going to do interviews and I'm like, wow, this is a good sign. Like yeah. I'm going to do interviews. They, they like it. And, and he calls me, he's like, all right, Hey, we're going to change your name to use your real last name, Levesque. And it's French. So go in the other room, cut promos and Alex write in French. And I'm like, Oh, there's a mistake here. Like I don't, I don't speak French. Right. <laughs> I, I'm not from Canada. Like, you know, and this is like an all time, one of the best, many think the greatest promo cutter yeah. in the yeah. business. And he's like, all right, well go in the other room then and do it in a French accent, but hurry up. You only got yeah. <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I go in the other room, I cut these terrible, like inspector Cluzo promos. And then I come out and I go to him and I'm like, okay, so French character, what do you, what do you want it to be? Like, what is the character? And he goes, you figure it out. In in some way, I look at that and I go like, "Wow, man, I I, could, I couldn't believe he said it to me." And I was so disheartened and kind of angry that like, I think, man, they're gonna do all this stuff and they that now they just tell me go figure it out, like yeah. just stupid and like all that stuff. But like realistically, I'm glad it happened that way. It made me like I had to put a lot of thought into it and go back and figure out, okay, well, what do I want to be? How do I? All right, if that's the lot I'm given, those are the cards I'm I'm dealt, right? And you know, to use that card analogy, am I going to hold my cards? Am I going to bluff? Am I going to, how am I going to get through this? And and you just do, and you make it into something good. And I think that if, if you can look at whatever's put in front of you, the stoic philosophy, I guess, of the obstacles are the path. And if you can look at it in that manner and see those things as like, okay, this is where I got to go. Now, this is where I'm at. So I'm going to, am I going to make this awesome? Am I going to make this into something really good? How am I going to make this and you do the best that you can with it. I think that's a lesson in anything business. You know, when, when COVID hit, man, everything's shutting down. What are you yeah. going to do? Um, we're going to do this and we're going to make it great. Taking our second break from the show to highlight our second presenting partner, OutSystems. They're a partner of the POLs that keeps our business going and they can be a partner of yours. OutSystems makes applications that make the difference and solve the needs of your company. Allow me to explain. They empower their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications so you can go out and capture new markets, land new ideas, deploy them, and learn, ultimately winning customers and generating revenue for your business. They do that through mobile app development. For your technical heads out there, OutSystems can tackle your backlog, leverage new tech, and keep up with the changing needs of your business so you can help drive future innovation. And for us, we use them last year during the pandemic to create a bespoke COVID app so that our players, staff, and coaches could get through all the checkpoints day to day. OutSystems, they work with the likes of Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and more. So pretty reputable. Build the difference with OutSystems. You can learn more at OutSystems.com. That is OutSystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ticketmaster. They're the official ticketing partner of the Premier Lacrosse League and are powered by Partner at the PLL. We're thrilled to announce our upcoming 2021 summer schedule in tandem with the Ticketmaster team. That's going to be in a couple weeks, depending on when you're listening to this. That will account for fan and player safety as a priority, including manifestations of all of the venues and all of the MSAs we're playing in. We'll have a joint COVID policy available and a top-class ticketing menu for your purchasing availabilities. 
Buy and sell tickets online for concerts, sports, theater, family, and other events near you at Ticketmaster.com. Yeah, seizing the moment. I mean, I, I tell my brother who uh, used to kind of watch me get downstairs and, and watch uh, the Monday Night uh, Wars, and I was, I was uh, obviously a Raw guy, and then would somehow cobble the money to get the pay-per-views. And he was like, where do you feel hooked on this? And I was like, there's no other business or you know, live television business where you have these world-class athletes that are out there to perform. And then on television live, they're given a microphone by Vince and the, you know, the, the creatives. And they say, all right, go cut the promo and don't fuck up, basically. Yeah. Like that to me, when you think about the difference between yourself or a rock or a Ric Flair or a Paul Heyman, like some of the best, in my opinion, people to cut promos live. It's, it's that moment. And, and I think, you know, the one that jumps out to me was when, you know, you're a part of DX, um, you know, Shawn Michaels gets injured. You take on like the middle card role to the top card role really. And you get the mic and you did an, uh, you know, a, really what some people think is shoot interview with, with JR later. But like when you walk out on stage and when you know, like, well, fuck, this is kind of it. I, I got to hit this. And if I don't like, I'll be okay, but there, but it's not going to be where I want to be. That's like those championship games in team sports. It's like, we got to show up here. And if our best players don't show up, we're probably going to lose and we'll have next season, but fuck man, we've made it this far. So do you, like, what do you do when you're at the gorilla and you're going out ready to cut a live promo on television? You don't get a second take like in acting or Broadway or theater. Man, you just take a deep breath, <laughs> rely on yourself and you go do it. You know, you bank on yourself and you, and you just go do it. You try to stay as focused as you can. It's no different than any sport. If you are, you want the ball, you know, if, if there's seconds left on the clock and you're down a point and you got to, you got to score. I think you have to be realistic about it. If you're on the team and LeBron's on there, you go like, give it to LeBron. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're on the team and you're looking around and you're like, give it to me, you know, I, I'd rather take the shot and fail, you know, then, but, but again, I think a lot of people are so caught up in the doing it and, and being afraid to fail, being afraid to, you can't be afraid of that. You, you have to, there's a million times that you take the shot and you miss yeah. and it, all falls apart and everything else happens, but all those are leading you to the one that you take the shot and it, and you succeed on it. You learn everything from those failures. And as long as you're working hard, not just failing and then going like, Oh, well, better luck next time. It's no, it's okay. I failed. What did I do wrong? And how am I going to fix that? It used to drive me nuts when I would see talent doing things that they did poorly and then doing them every time. Hmm. I, I remember working in the ring one time and somebody was going to, you know, talking to each other and they wanted me to do a move in the corner, like a, some kind of flip thing in the corner. There was a match right before us where somebody had just done that same move way better than I do it. Yeah. And I just put the brakes on, cut them off. and was like, no. And later they were like, oh, I'm sorry. Do you not do that? I thought you did that move. And I'm like, no, I do it. I just... You know, like Sean was on before us and he just did it like a thousand times better. I'm not going to do it there. You got to know your limitations and you got to know all your things, but you got to be willing to take the shot when the time comes to you. Yeah. And and do it over and over and over again and then figure out the 
hey, this is what I do well. This is what I don't do well. And if I don't do it well, I'm either going to take it out of my, my repertoire or I'm going to fix. Like, if you know you can't cut a promo in, in today's world, what are you doing to fix it? Now we provide them with the tools in the performance center. If I see somebody that struggles with promos, which a lot of guys do because they don't have time to do it when they're in the independence or if they're just learning, probably mic work is the hardest thing to get. So we bring in acting coaches. We bring in improv specialists that work with them on just improv timing. And we bring in those tools to give it to them. Whether they want to use the tools is up to them. Yeah. But, you know, those are the things you have to be self-aware to the, what works and what doesn't and then willing to fix the things that don't. So you have to take the shots to know what works and what doesn't. And you've been down that path on continuous improvement, bodybuilder to now working with a, a mutual friend of ours. You work a lot closer with, with Joe DeFranco then I've got a chance to, but there's a, there's a story that I'll share with you. You know, when you were first, when you first got a look at the WCW, you know this better than I do, but Bob Dew, who's the VP of WCW, gives you a call. Yeah. And your reaction was like, no way. Bob Dew is not calling me. Is, is that, is that for real? I, uh, I was talking with Joe. I met him first at WrestleMania down in Florida. I walked up to him in, in the weight room. I recognized him. I was like, I gotta meet this fucking guy. He's a legend. And uh, then we hit it off, and he's been on the podcast, and he's, and he's helped uh, correct my, my, a lot of my, my back issues. Joe was telling me, as you tear your bicep at one stage, you've had massive injuries, torn a quad off the bone twice. twice. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and you're like, all right, it's time for me to, to train differently. So you go and start researching the best people, pick up the phone, call Joe's gym. I don't know if he's ever told you this. But someone who had answer at the time, or maybe it was a voicemail, or he went to Joe who was training a client. It was uh, Paul Levesque, it's Triple H to call. And he goes, you're fucking with me. And he was like, no way. Same reaction kind of that you had with, with Bob Dew. And I, I guess like the continuous improvement also dovetails into humility, man. And like, you're a humble guy and that's rare. Um, and I imagine hearing that, you know, you think about Triple H and what you've done and having the, you know, the wherewithal to do your own research, change your swing and and figure out who to call, call that person directly. You don't have your assistant call like this is me and the impact that you have on other people. You know, Joe's driving from New Jersey to Connecticut multiple times a week to work with you. Like, how do you test for that? What do you think about that related to your career and how important humility is. I, I think it's a big part of know what you are and who you are, but also be humble to it. And nobody's any different. And, and the reality of it is you can talk about all the things, work ethic, you can talk about all the reasons and all the other stuff, but it doesn't make it more, you just ended up in a different position, but people are all the same and that level of respect. So when I called Joe, I never thought that he would be like, you know, right, Triple H is calling me. Yeah. Right. To me, I was like, I'm calling Joe DeFranco. Yeah. Like, I hope he answers. I hope he calls me back. You know what I mean? In my mind, I'm like reading all this stuff. This guy does. I'm like, oh, this guy's amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm reading all this stuff. I'm watching these videos. I'm seeing him at the combines, all this stuff. Like, this guy, this guy's amazing. He's one of the top strength guys, you know, in the world. And, you know, I, I, in my mind, I thought like, well, I hope he answers my calls. I'd like to get some information. And I wasn't calling him to say, hey, can you train me? I was calling him because I was kind of in a place where I needed somebody to do what he did, but he was in Jersey, I was in Connecticut. I thought like maybe he knows somebody here that he can advise me to, this person's really good, you know, or something. Yeah. And then he said, can I come meet you? And 
I, again, thought he was just looking at it from a, let me evaluate you and I can try to find out who the right person is for you. And then before he left, he was like, I'd like to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, sure, if you want to do that, that's yeah. better than anything I was thinking of. So that's phenomenal. I've been lucky in my career to meet a lot of people that I grew up admiring, but I've never been like a starstrucky type person. I've never been like, oh my God, there he is. I don't, and I shouldn't go talk to him or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. And I get maybe that's how I was brought up. I'm not really sure. But to me, I just, everybody's real people. I wouldn't think of standing there gawking at a celebrity or talking about them as if, you know, you're two tables away, but they, as if they don't hear you or see you. And they're just, they're people. Yeah. They're just cool things and, and, and got notoriety because of those cool things. No different than me. I'm just like everybody else. I just, I got, I, I was lucky, worked hard and, and got into a great position. And I'm fortunate to have the things and be where I am. Yeah. Well, you, it sounds like you keep your North star and uh, you commit to that. I mean, you know, that to go back to the, the, the Bob Dew story, then you get a, you get a look with Eric Bischoff. You tell him to give, give you five minutes in the ring. Then he offers you a two year contract at 50 K a year or whatever it is. And you, and you go back to him and say, I want to do one year because I'm going to either knock this fucking thing out of the park for you. And you're going to want to sign me for a lot more or you're going to want to ditch me. And like, damn, here you are, Paul Levesque, like, you know, getting your dream opportunity and you put that at risk. And yeah, uh, there's, there's part of me even now that like when I, I say that story sometimes, <laughs> I think like, what a ditch it I was. <laughs> like, uh, you know, this guy, like it's the dream moment that you get. And the guy goes, you know, two years of this. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's like your ability to lower the stakes a little bit and be practical. I mean, that, you know, now you're in the boardroom and you know you and Steph and the team, as we had talked about before the call, with the rights deal that that shifted the business largely in 2019 from one and a half hundred million bucks a year on a, to now close to 500, with the split up between Fox and Comcast taking the Raw and and SmackDown rights. That's a big deal. That's a deal in the billion dollar category and you're having those direct conversations. So yeah. whether you're in the ring cutting a huge promo like your career depends on it or you're negotiating the rights deal that's going to impact the stock, like you've got to be poised. Yeah, and and I think having a little bit of that like, well, everybody's just people. I, I met Nick Khan um, who, you know, if – I, I, I guess I didn't realize it at the time, but like when I met Nick Khan, you know, if you look him up at various points in time, like you see like most powerful man in sports, you yeah. know, like just read all this incredible stuff about him. I don't know. It, it didn't like, I was like, Oh yeah, man, I read about him. He's a big deal, but I didn't really think much of it. And he's the very much the same way so much. So even that he's like, I think he's just very logical about the whole, like, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. He's like, well, just call him. Just call him up. I'm like, I can't call a guy. I don't know him. He's a like, Triple H, dude. Just call him up. Yeah. Well, you know, or whatever. And he's the same way. He'll just call somebody up and 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 go with it. Um, I think, you know, me meeting people like him, it's the same. Meeting people like you that have that drive, you learn from all of them at various points along the way and take little bits and pieces of it. Nick, Nick's been a game changer. Um, in a lot of ways for us. But when I sat in the room, when, when we were working out the deal with Fox and there was just a handful of us and then, you know, Rupert walks in and the whole thing. And it's like, I don't know, just having that separation of it where you're like, oh, well, that's cool. Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. A little bit of adrenaline pop though, right? I'm sure. Well, well adrenaline pop and you <laughs> want to be on your game, but at the yeah. same point in your time, you're like, 
oh, look at him. He's got shoes and sneakers on. One's a month high. Like yeah. He's just, he's yeah. just doing his shoe this morning. <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours. Um, you know, we, we referenced solving for our businesses in COVID. That's why also, luckily, I've been able to book you uh, for the show as we do this remotely. Um, dude, put, put it this way. You and I met, what, a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. And I, I knew who you were, but I didn't know all of the details and stuff. And I've, I've seen it since. What, what you've done is amazing. And your transition from athlete, I think it, it was fascinating to me as well, because I don't know a lot of people that have been through the similar thing to go from athlete to executive, maybe even while still doing both. Yeah. You're starting something like, it, it's funny, our similarities are so great. So my point is, I would have done this show for you. I would have made. I would have moved things, even if I was <laughs> as possible. But th there's there's something that's a similar thing of like you, also, like you said like professional lacrosse player sort of kind of didn't exist, and what would you even do, and how, and all the things you're doing are amazing. And I think even sometimes you're maybe you break it down more than I do. Like you, it's funny you'll use terms for things, but I'm like I didn't know there was a term for that. I just thought. <laughs> It's fascinating, man. Congratulations on everything you're doing and your, and your success. And I think uh, when you're as driven as you are and as smart as you are, you, there's no limit on what you're going to be able to do with the stuff you're doing. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I I, um, I share the same sentiment with you and uh, and have followed your career. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking across from my producer, and you know, it's it's interesting that that we're recording this remotely, and you can hear your calendar go off, and we're not going to edit that shit out because that goes to show how busy you are. And yeah, it also also goes to show how technology technology is beyond my grasp. of. I don't know how to turn that dinger off. Yeah, that's yeah, all good. I kept hearing it, and I'm like, I wish I knew how to turn that off because I'm sure it's pissing them off, but I don't know how to do it. I have, I do have a. So I, I have one one stealer question that's that's selfish for me to to end this thing on. You know, I think about a, a lot of your success and i'm sure there's a lot of uh pain and failure you've experienced that a lot of people don't know uh, but what i think about with both of us is is our careers where you know you're performing in ring as an athlete being in a locker room and then an executive in that business while still being in a locker room but we didn't talk about and this is much different than me i don't know how you do it as a, a husband as a as a father to three daughters um and uh, married to Stephanie McMahon in the family. And so like the trifecta where this is, we both run family businesses, it's incredibly psychologically dynamic and hard to manage. I wonder if you're, and you tell me how, how you manage that, what, what you think about to level set. But number two, is it because you know, your whole career you've been a heel? You know, you have thicker skin than everyone. You know how to handle this shit. And like, I, I just don't know, but I'm amazed by it. So one, thanks for saying it. But like, nothing is perfect and nothing is going to. When you look at somebody from the outside and you go like, wow, you just see what they show you. So sometimes you go like, well, that, that man has been through all that stuff. Doesn't bother me. It bothers me just like it bothers everybody else just how you deal with it, right? And and you don't let them see you sweat. You don't let them read it on your face. You keep your poker face and you move on. You know, there's a point in time in my career, you had said to me, there's a point in your time in your career where you, you sign with WWF, you're on the rise. Man, my 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 stardom is is picking up. I'm, I, you know, even get to the point where I become champion and, and all those things. Coincidentally, you know, like I'm, I have a great relationship with Vince, but there's a lot of talent I have that, right? So it's, 
but everything is great and everybody's singing my praise and doing all the stuff. By chance, I meet Steph. By chance, you know, backstage, we become acquainted with each other and fall in love with each other and everything happens to what it happens. And my career goes from a guy that has no ceiling and is as good as anybody here to, oh my God, he only gets everything he has because he's dating Steph McMahon. It, it totally changes every, every conversation about my career. Hmm. At first, yeah, it was tough. Now, like, I don't care. Like, it's a learning process. You just got to get past it. It isn't going to change. It isn't going to anything. It's uh, people are going to say what they're going to say. They're going to do what they're going to do. I guess no different than in family business. Things are difficult, but they are what they are. You have to deal with them. None of it is going to be perfect. You deal with it. People, I get asked the question a lot that you mentioned about like, well, you have three daughters and you have a wife and you're on the road a lot and all these things, how do you work-life balance? How do you, you know, it seems like you have a good handle on work-life balance. How do you do it? Uh, my answer is always work-life balance is bullshit. Yeah. It's a bullshit term. It doesn't exist. There's no balance. You do the best you can. Just like every other parent in the world that has a job, that has responsibilities, that has all those things, it's hard. Mm. Hard day to day. When you're not with your kids, you feel guilty that you're not with your kids. When you're not at work, you feel guilty you're not doing something you're supposed to be doing at work. But the, the only advice that I could ever say to people is just be present in what you're doing. And to me, it's like, so when I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. You know, I have to deal with work, things here and there or something like that. But for the most part, if I say I'm going to go do something with my kids, I go do something with my kids. If I'm going to be at work, I'm at work. And, and separate them out because there is no balance. You do the best you can. Realize, like, at certain points, you kind of become man, I didn't see my kids a whole bunch lately. I got to book some time off and go do some stuff with my kids. and take care of that relationship. I'll just say this to you because I think you'll appreciate it. I saw a, a, a person a little while ago that said, uh, they were talking about clients, but I feel like it's everything in your life. If you uh, treat everything as if you're dating still, it you'll, you'll always have a great relationship with your clients. Like you, you always treat, if, if you're dating somebody, you, you, you think of everything. Yeah. And, <laughs> right? And you, and you do it and you, when you start to take it for granted that it's just there, you then move on and you do other things and yeah, they'll get used to it and all that stuff. You, you got to treat them like they're a new, new girlfriend or a new boyfriend or whatever that is. And then you're just dating and you stay through that. And if you could stay present to that, then I think it's not easy to do, but then it makes it easier for them and it makes it easier for you. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, we show our best selves on our on our first date almost exclusively and then that's what happens with a lot of relationships, like divorce rate, all this stuff that there's a sense of complacency. There's consent yeah. sense of complacency in, in athletes performing at the highest level. You wonder why, you know, four-time All-American doesn't cut it out in the NBA and I think that analogy carries well and, into everything we do and it's a, it's a good way to check ourselves and our ego and our purpose and the and and I think on the client side how important and undersaid retention is yeah. you know I know you get a you get a sponsor in and then they're in and you're going for the next one and they're like what the fuck happened to me yeah no hey you were calling me every day yeah you know what I'm saying yeah. you were calling me every day checking on me making sure I was good what happened all of a sudden I, I haven't heard from you in months and because th there's a certain point in time where you just get comfortable the people that are closest to you, it's a comfort thing. Like mm. talk about your wife or your kids or whatever that is. I know the easiest thing in the world for me to do is to take when I'm angry or tired or 
pissed off or whatever it is to, to take it out on Steph. If, if I go like, oh, man, I got three things I got to do. I haven't seen Steph for a while. I got this important thing for work or the kids. Like she's going to drop to the low man on the totem pole in some way. That's wrong. Yep. And you have to keep those things like in priority and keep them checked because it's easy. It's, it's why you can treat your family. <laughs> you know, if you have brothers and sisters, a lot of time, you don't realize it until later in life, but growing up, you treat them like crap. Yeah. Take them for granted. Because, because you know, they're there. Where are they going to go? They live right next door to me in the room next door. He's not going anywhere. I'll treat them like crap. I'll beat them up all day long. I'll, I'll do horrible things to them. But then if I need a favor, I'm knocking on his door and you know, they're there and you realize they can't go anywhere. So it is what it is. Later in life, you realize that's not the case. Those relationships can be fragile. You have to treat every relationship in that manner. It's tough to do and it's hard to keep in a mindset, but I think if you can do it, the, the benefit is to you if you can do it. Mm. Appreciate that, man. I couldn't think of a better way to end this podcast. I wanted to try something different to wrap it. And as Paul and I discussed, your broadcast talent is just as critical as your in-ring. Maybe maybe not as critical as Paul's move that you just heard that pedigree was delivered as good without a play call than with, but it still elevates the show. And at least to our business, shout out to Paul Burmeister, Brendan Burke, Ryan Boyle, Chantel McCabe, who call awesome shows every summer. Damn. That was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Paul's career is only just beginning, though inspirationally getting to watch him transition from a world-class athlete to operator in the business has been a joy. Keep up the amazing work, Paul, and keep grinding. Also, quick shout out to Joe DeFranco, who we mentioned, incredible SNCU, continues to deliver for athletes everywhere. Like Hunter, I had a chance to train with him. He was helpful during recovery to an injury that I had a few years ago. And check out Triple H and the WWE this weekend for WrestleMania. Please consider subscribing to Suiting Up on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're at it, give us a short rating and review. Tell us what you think of the show. We would appreciate that greatly. This show was presented by Public.com. By creating a whole new way to invest, Public also makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. Follow me there at Paul Rabel for my weekly musings on public companies. And thank you, OutSystems. They provide tools to help companies quickly build apps like web and mobile. When it comes to the PLL, they helped us create a COVID-safe environment for applications on all of our players, coaches, and staff's mobile devices within the bubble. OutSystems.com, where you can service your business needs and lastly, everything on this show made possible by our incredible team here at the PLL Podcast, produced and edited by Brett Roberts, research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design by Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and our overtime newsletter, Joe Keegan. What a list. And before I say we see you next week, we're going to stay current with big moments in sports. So who's that guest? Soccer is coming back. So we're going to lead with one of the greatest ever, Abby Wambach. Until then.